welcome to episode 46 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. It's January 31st, and in today's episode, we're going to talk about a hot topic in the study of pre-modern disease, ancient DNA. Since the beginning of the century, but really over the past decade, a series of high-profile studies have looked at the ancient DNA of several diseases. Overall, the results have been impressive. In some cases, such as the Black Death, the ancient DNA allowed us to prove in the present that this specific disease, the Black Death, was indeed plague rather than some other disease. So definitely a fascinating development in pre-modern history. Our guest today is Stephanie Marciniak. Stephanie is currently a postdoc in the Department of Anthropology at Penn State University and received her PhD in 2016 from McMaster University in Canada. She's interested in the evolution of infectious diseases and adaptive responses that have impacted human biology throughout history and studies these questions using ancient DNA. Stephanie has already published several articles on these topics spanning between anthropology and paleogenomics. She's covered malaria in Italy over the Roman period, as well as smallpox in the early modern period. Her other works look at the genome of larger organisms, such as the extinct giant koala lemur, which used to live in Madagascar until the 15th century. And I suggest Googling for some skeletons and reconstructions of how this animal may have looked. Pretty interesting. So hi, Stephanie, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So Merle, ancient DNA has come up in our work on the Justinianic plague on multiple occasions now. And the immediate context is that several human remains with the plague pathogen, Yersinia pestis, were found in Bavaria up to 2016. And this made us try to make sense of quite a few paleogenetics articles with no background in the topic, which I guess was fun. And then in 2019, as we were working on a couple of publications, a major ancient DNA study came out, which conducted a really large-scale analysis of human remains from Western and Central Europe. And it established, for example, that plague reached both Spain and England. This is, of course, the the Keller et al. article. Now, for me, maybe the most challenging aspect of the ancient DNA work is how quickly it can come out. I remember this point in 2019, I think, in which every week or so had a new study that we had to read and consider for our own work. And I guess as pre-modern historians, this is a very different pace from what we're used to. Yeah, I think one of the big debates in our field is how to interpret ancient DNA finds. Or in other words, if you're not someone like Stephanie who works on the actual pathogen, what exactly can we use them to tell us if we're historians or archeologists, for example? And as in so many other debates, uh, there are so many historical interpretations after establishing that a person simply had a disease. We've spoken about some of these questions in past episodes, but they'd include issues such as whether we can connect different ADNA finds and mortality, or whether ADNA might help us reconstruct transmission routes of these diseases. But before we get into these topics with Stephanie, how are things looking in Jerusalem, Lee? Are you guys still under lockdown? Yes, we are. We're still on our third lockdown. Uh, The government has been surprised that the infection rates and mortality haven't gone down significantly despite this lockdown. But as I noted briefly last week, both the law and regulations have really been arbitrarily enforced based on people's communities. So for example, there is a public park in Tel Aviv uh, where police has been fining and even arresting people who are just sitting in this public park next to their home. Well, in Jerusalem today, we had a funeral of 20,000 people, most of which seemed unmasked from from the photos I've seen. And although this was technically illegal, the police didn't stop it and just decided that they couldn't do anything about it. So why not let it continue? So enforcement, I would say, seems at least to correlate to an extent with politics. So allies of the current government can get away with more than its opposition. And this obviously creates a lot of resentment among people who are maybe regulated more carefully, while people who aren't allies of the government, broadly speaking, seem to feel that they can get away with more. So they just continue doing that. And the result, of course, is that this lockdown didn't really matter all that much other than make quite a few people pretty miserable. So you're saying politics is important, Lee. It's good to know. 
Yeah, I, I like your one line conclusion there. <laughs> Foucault is also important, Merle. Just saying. Lee, I'm practicing for my next career as a marketing and branding executive so I can come up with my one line slogans. Yeah, we might want to have some discussion about your future career. But how are things in Annapolis, Merle? What's going on there? Yeah, so starting this morning and even as we tape today, it's snowing. This is the first real snow we've had in Annapolis. We had a very small one earlier this week, in the beginning of the week, which was gone within three or four hours. So it's actually the first time my kids have seen snow since there was no snow last year either. So we've done all the fun things you're supposed to do this morning already for a couple hours outside. We built snowmen, we did some snow angels, and I dumped some snow down their back, which they did not like. You sound like a great dad. <laughs> yeah, and then I gave them shovels and made them shovel the driveway, which they had <laughs> talk as a fun task. So, you know, I give them credit for that. They're very excited. We've also gotten to the point, I think the second time during this pandemic, where my wife and I are really bored of what we're eating and what we've gotten for takeout. We've kind of hit the same cycle again. I don't know if this has happened to you yet. And so we've started trying out some new food. I made a skirt steak last night with chimichurri sauce, which turns out that it's actually very easy to make. So that was fun. And my wife has learned how to pickle vegetables. So we made pickled cucumbers, obviously pickles, and pickled carrots that she made. How did you decide what to make? For the pickling? No, new foods to eat. How did you decide what, what to try? I always thought that chimichurri sauce sounded exciting and was good tasting and must have been hard, but it turns out it's actually really, really easy. You just cut up a few things and throw it in a blender. And then uh, for the pickling, she just wanted to try that out. And so she got a bunch of spices. So Stephanie, where are you and how are things there? So right now I'm home in Ontario, Canada with uh, my family because of the pandemic for the past little while. And it's just been a lockdown here in Ontario for the past uh, month or so. So I'm just dealing with that, but trying to keep busy. Try, trying to take on some new hobbies as well. And there's some nice snow outside. So that's always nice to look at when you're here and go outside and get some fresh air and just trying to keep busy. So how are lockdowns there? What do your lockdowns entail? Is it a complete lockdown or kind of arbitrary like here? Um, the whole province is locked down. So essentially you're only really supposed to be going out for essential items like to the grocery store and things like that. So it might be less restrictive than other types of lockdowns, but it's a little bit similar to what happened last year in March. So we'll probably keep going to try to control the cases until they sort of plateau and drop a bit more. And do you know if schools are open? I think schools may be reopening some regions that are less, uh, less hardly hit than others. So ones that are not too close to sort of hotspots. So the ones outside of that may be attempting reopening. Yeah, it's interesting how different countries are obviously interpreting these lockdowns in very different ways and how they're pushing things off or not. But that's something we've noticed talking to a number of guests over the last, well, almost a year now. <laughs> but in any case, let's turn now to the interview. Let's start, as I always like to do, and Lee makes fun of me, as regulars of his podcast probably know, with a broad question that's never easy to answer. But maybe you can just tell us what exactly is ancient DNA and how do we define what it is? So I mean, ancient DNA is just generally this broad term that's used to refer the recovery of DNA from individuals, like whether that's humans, mammals, animals, plants, they're generally just old. So it's a really broad and kind of relative term. And what it means is that the DNA molecules themselves are fragmented into shorter uh, sequences, so they're very small. And this is because after death, the DNA starts to degrade. There are a lot of chemical and molecular processes that happen after death. So this means that the DNA within that individual will decay, but then also there's outside sources of DNA from the burial environment. So that will also come in and start to destroy and fragment the DNA. So there's a lot of variability in how that process happens, but it's generally referring to this complex mixture of outside DNA within also this host DNA or individual DNA that you're interested in in particular. 
just out of interest, what would be the boundaries of ancient DNA? So when does DNA begin to be ancient on one hand? And what's maybe the, the most ancient DNA that we could reconstruct in any meaningful way? So again, it's like there's no hard cutoff for how you would refer to something as ancient. So it's generally just something that's old. And you would go also more if you couldn't have an idea of when that particular individual or specimen was uh, sort of found, you can look at particular patterns of damage to the DNA to help differentiate it from some of this more modern. So DNA that's from something from the 1970s could also still be considered ancient if it has a particular damage pattern, but it's sort of just a relative term. Like there's no hard cutoffs necessarily for what would determine ancient. It's just something from more recent, maybe like 10 years might not be considered ancient, but it's anything within sort of that historical time window for that part. And in terms of the recovery of meaningful or biologically meaningful ancient DNA, that's largely been done with some of our human ancestors from a few hundred thousand years ago or uh, tens of thousands of years ago. So you can still get information from our older ancestors that's meaningful and able to place that in the context of human history. But for non-human or hominid DNA, is that being studied beyond, let's say, tens or hundreds of thousands of years ago? Are there even options for that? Uh, I think there are for if you're dealing with maybe mammoths or preserved uh, mammals from the permafrost, those would be ideal scenarios where you could really push back the timeline in terms of you know hundreds of thousands or few hundred thousands of years. That's an area I'm less familiar with, but I know those types of samples from the permafrost can give you that sort of time breadth compared to if you were going to other geographic locations, because in terms of preservation of ancient DNA, temperature, climate, all of that factors into it. So those situations are more ideal if you want that time depth. And then the burial environment may also help preserve DNA as well. So if it's a cave or something else, and then something that's more humid or tropical like Madagascar would be trickier to try to recover signatures from. So all those kind of play into that time span and how much you can extract from whatever you're working with. Now, Lee mentioned at the beginning that this is kind of a exploding field for lack of a better term. Could you maybe tell us how the field has evolved and why it's become such a hot topic over the last 10, 20 years or so? So it's really exploded recently because sort of around in the 1990s, ancient DNA approaches relied on something called polymerase chain technology. So this was basically just targeting short fragments and then trying to increase the number of these ancient molecules in these specific DNA extracts but this particular technique was problematic just because it wasn't really suited to the tiny fragments of ancient DNA. So there'd be a bias because for this technique, it would preferentially also target modern, modern or contaminant DNA. And that would be problematic because when you're working with ancient DNA, you just want the DNA from that's actually ancient and not being influenced by any of the uh, contaminants. So there was this shift to high throughput sequencing. It's commonly referred to and with this technique, what it does, it facilitates greater access to the endogenous or host fraction of ancient DNA because it sequences the DNA in parallel. So massively parallel sequencing. So millions of molecules can be sequenced at once. So what this means is that you can retrieve those short DNA fragments that represent the bulk of the endogenous DNA that's actually in these skeletal or fossil remains, as opposed to older technology that could only target maybe a gene segment or particular parts of genes and not necessarily have the depth of sequencing millions of molecules like all at once. So this change within the field of ancient DNA, there's been one change which has been very significant? Yes, so high throughput sequencing was a huge sort of change that enabled those very short fragmented molecules to be captured and sequenced. So a greater depth of information could be gained from the same types of samples, but also there were methodological improvements as well at the same time in terms of um, experimental workflows that help you recover the most DNA from a particular individual or sample, and then also computational innovations as well that also help to authenticate the DNA that you're working with to show that it's legitimately ancient and just the scale of how, the, how that sequence data is processed. So, so to contextualize things, would you say that we are pre-peak, during the peak, or post-peak, and all these new developments that have really revolutionized the field? 
I think we're still in the middle of it because things just keep improving in terms of the information that's able to be gained from different types of substrates as well. So you can move beyond looking at human skeletal elements or skeletons themselves, like looking at sediments to get human mitochondrial genomes or genomes of uh, particular animals or fauna that kind of occupied a specific site. So we're just, I think, right in the middle of all these exciting changes that are happening to ancient DNA in terms of being able to recover different types of information from different substrates from the past. So you've kind of hinted at what this process looks like. Maybe can you tell us what are you testing? How does it get to you? How does that process work? What kind of machines you're using? All that type of stuff. I just know I see photos of people who work in ancient DNA in like hazmat suits whenever they're posing for stuff. So maybe why do you do that? Uh, and other types of questions like that. Yeah. So uh, from this, the first step, so beyond is establishing specific research questions and appropriate me methodology. If you're working with humans, you may have, you may go out to the field site to assist with excavations or work with a bioarchaeologist to assist in excavating particular individuals and then taking uh, samples of, uh, or taking subsamples of the specific skeletal element on the site. You may also have samples sent to the lab as well from individuals who want to, who already excavated whatever it is, and then they want to send it to you for your work with so you can get the samples that way. But what happens once you have them, they come into the laboratory. And the first step is to sort of that sometimes it's a destructive subsampling process. So if you're working with a tooth, like for ancient pathogen work, a part of that molar root would be removed with a Dremel then it would be pulverized into a powder. And then this powder would be subject to an enzymatic solution that breaks down the bonds in that bony matrix to release the DNA that's within that into a solution. And then this is what the ex this extract then goes, then goes forward to remove any potential inhibitors that could confound the information that you're gonna obtain from that particular DNA, ex DNA extract later. And then it's just subjected to different processes that help repair any of the damage within those molecules and then make it sequenceable for those high throughput sequencing platforms. So as a researcher, would you be involved throughout this process or are different points in this process in which like a lab manager or some specialized technician does those specific parts and you as a researcher would focus more on your research questions, ask, I mean, asking questions, answering those questions, analysis, and maybe trying to make sense out of all this. So I think the types of positions available in labs will vary. So some labs may have a research tech or a lab manager who will keep track of samples that are in a particular database. They may have individuals who actually will do some of the lab work, maybe for side projects or other projects. But for myself as researcher, working with the particular subsample from right from the start. So with that uh, subsampling part all the way to the end through sequencing, carrying it through to the analysis stage, that would that is generally the workflow for some of the labs. But if there are larger labs, they may partition out those responsibilities as well. But generally individuals, my experience, have that trajectory from having the particular subsample, working with it all the way through. And how long would it take from, let's say, excavating a human remain or human remains until you get results. So not necessarily until you publish those results, but until you actually get the results. So depending when the actual subsamples are received, the process can take anywhere, maybe from about a, a month or two months to work with. And it depends how many subsamples you're working with as well. That'll be a factor in the length of time it takes, but to go from DNA extraction, getting it ready for sequencing, and then ultimately sequencing and analyzing it that can take up to two months, depending on resources available as well. Or more, and if you have more individuals, it could take longer than that. If you have hundreds of individuals, it's gonna take many, many months or a year. And would you say that most of this work is technical or would it require more creativity, let's say, or problem solving? I think there's a lot of creativity and problem solving during the lab work phase, especially. So if you're trying to maximize the information that you can gain from the subsamples that you're working with, if there are any issues with maybe some, some DNA extracts that don't seem to be performing as well, there doesn't seem to be a lot of post-DNA in those, trying to figure out maybe that's because there wasn't a lot there to start with, or is that something that happened during the 
lab workflow workflow process, that would be something that would require a little bit of creativity, but also with the analytical side, that also requires some, I guess, creativity there as well in determining when you're looking at the sequences, assessing what could be meaningful given the information that you have. So if you're looking at pathogens, if any particularly interesting signatures pop up and you have all of this data, sort of trouble or figuring out or prioritizing which ones may be relevant to pursue if they represent something that's an authentic sequence and then trying to evaluate all of that before going forward to potentially another stage of the project. So you've worked on pathogens in particular. Is there a different method when you're looking for pathogens or is this all very similar? So if you're working with pathogens, the approach can be a bit different. So before, if you're working with ancient pathogen DNA, that particular DNA fraction can represent less than 0.5% of the overall DNA in the host. So you're working with a very minute fraction. And in general, the workflow for working with ancient pathogen DNA is to sequence everything first, sort of a shotgun or metagenomic sequencing approach. And this lets you see not just the host DNA, but you can look at microbial components, environmental DNA, as well as modern contaminants. So you can get a less biased view of what's actually constituting the DNA from this particular individual. And in that way, you can look at specific signatures for potential pathogens of interest. So this would involve sort of a bioinformatic approach as well to ascertain the likelihood of pathogen-specific DNA being there. And then from that, you can go forward to different types of lab work, one called hybridization capture, which is also used for other types of approaches. But that approach would let you recover just the specific gene or genomes of whatever pathogen you're looking for. So if you have an idea beforehand, or if you see one from the data that you're working with, you can go after or target that particular species and then move into more, to move into different analyses that let you look at reconstructing genomes and also evolutionary inferences about that particular pathogen. So one of the issues that I think I've been seeing from the sides here, because I'm obviously not involved, is that a lot of this work is obviously highly specialized, but also pretty expensive. And even though costs have gone down significantly from what I understand, I think the costs of equipment and of testing are, are still are still a major factor. So could, could you maybe say a bit about this? How much would it cost to sequence a genome? So for working with ancient samples or individuals, there's a lot of uh, laboratory prep and protocols involves a lot of stages in that. So it can range, depending on the workflow that you're implementing, it can range from maybe 1000 per individual sample in terms of cost, like to take it through from the DNA extraction stage to getting it ready for sequencing. The actual sequencing cost will be a lot more. So for a total project, it could end up being anywhere upwards, maybe $20,000, $40,000, depending on the scope of what you're doing. So it doesn't necessarily increase with the number of individuals, but if you're doing a lot of sequencing on particular valuable DNA extracts or these DNA libraries, then that could increase the cost as well. So it's not uh, necessarily a cheap endeavor, especially if you really want to go after something that's going to be a low target or component in the host. So that will increase the costs as well. So depending on what you're doing, those costs are flexible, but they're still going to be upwards of tens of thousands of dollars. And then, of course, as you laid out, there's a lot more people involved in the process. So presumably, you're also paying them and covering their benefits, et cetera, et cetera, so that there's quite a bit of back end that's built into this as well. Exactly. And these high costs would also mean that, broadly speaking, ancient DNA labs would exist in, let's say, wealthier countries than the global south, broadly speaking. I think there are universities like building up that local, like more local capacity to be able to do that, but it, it isn't going to be, I guess not that that's going to be a cheap endeavor to actually undertake. So there are going to be costs with doing that, but I know it is possible and, uh, and universities in those locations are likely looking into building up that capacity so they can control, not control. So there can be ownership of that process from working with individuals or sites that are within those countries and having that from the start to the finish, rather than outsourcing or having other labs from different countries like the United States come in, work with the samples and take that away and get back the results, maybe. Okay, so this is an expensive cost and there's a lot of people involved. The other question I guess is how many remains do you need to test 
before you often will find a positive result in one of these pathogens. And I'm going to assume you're going to say, well, it's variable depending on where you find it and when, but maybe is there a ballpark you can give our listeners? I can speak to the work I've done myself and also what I've seen. So for my work in recovering the most virulent malaria species, so Plasmonium falciparum, I screened 60 individuals and was only able to identify it in two of those individuals. So when you're undertaking one of these projects in terms of how many individuals or whatever it is that you include in your project, the goal at the start is to minimize any destruction to individual skeletal remains or whatever else they may be, just to preserve potential future work. So that's a factor in terms of how you design your research project rather than sort of going after a large scale effort in that sense, just to have that uh, preservation. But other projects can have up to maybe hundreds of individuals if they're exploring a research question potentially related to plague, where there are these catastrophic burial assemblages and some of these partnerships with museums may be in place to have that those that large scale analysis in place. But in terms of uh, getting sort of a positive result, there's a lot of variability in that. So again, comes down to the preservation of the DNA within that particular individual and how that pathogen itself actually its epidemiology, so how it actually acts. So it depends how it's disseminated through the body that can impact where that potential pathogen signature may localize in a particular individual. So that can complicate trying to recover it if it's a pathogen that doesn't preserve well. And if it's one that preserves well, like tuberculosis or leprosy, there are greater chances of recovering something, a signature like that and having a greater return potentially on positive results. So that can impact some of the recovery as well. So you said you tested 60 remains right. and got two positives. Why did you stop at 60? Was it a funding issue? Was it you found the two positives so you didn't need to look for anything else? Would you, maybe were you not able to get more than 60 samples? I mean, what was the reason there? Just out of curiosity. Yeah. So for that idea of the, the 60 individuals were used because we were looking at three sites. So we just want to try to get a representative number of individuals from those sites. And the goal was to be conservative in terms of the number of individuals that we were selecting for the destructive analysis. And the bonus with the work that I was doing was that the teeth were gonna be used for my engineering work, but then they were also going forward to isotope work. So there was a dual benefit with that as well in terms of maximizing the use of these particular individuals. But it was a conservative effort, mostly because at the time myself and my committee, we weren't sure if the project would actually work. So trying to take a more measured approach at the start made most sense. And then when we found the results from those 60, we included some juveniles as well that we had access to just to see if we could find anything else. But then after that, we dealt with what we had and moved forward with those individuals. So there's probably ongoing work, other teams, other labs trying to recover maybe more signatures of malaria from individuals in these contexts or other ones. So it's still an unfinished piece of research, I think, in general. And what would happen if you would not have found those two positive cases? Would you just drop the project or would you go and sequence more remains? At the time, I think if we didn't find those signatures of malaria, we may have called off that particular project just because if you're going, if there are 60 individuals and you've done these destructive analyses and you've done all like the post-sequencing analysis, and you still can't find anything promising. If there were no promising signatures at all in that sequence data initially, then that might be a good indicator that there is likely nothing there. So if there were no positive indicate leaks hunches to go on from that, then you could call it. But if there was nothing found, that would be the end of the story. But it doesn't mean that malaria was not there. It's just we were not able to actually recover signatures for it. So we won't be able to speak to it. Do you have a sense, does that maybe happen more often than you know, people like us on the historical side find out about, I mean, we hear the big stories, for example, I mean, I've read your malaria story, which is wonderful, sure. but are there with that positive story, you know, X number behind the scenes that people never hear about because it doesn't work for whatever reason? I, I think there, I think that is a lot of the story. So you see like there are a lot of exciting results that get published, but along the way, those teens and labs probably like they were doing a lot of work just to get those particular results. And it's like this convergence of having the right individual or individuals that have that sort of 
ideal amount of a particular pathogen signature that could be recovered and then became biologically meaningful because you had all that information. So it's just sometimes a bit of luck that it just kind of works out or is just the right question and it pans out in general. But in terms of sort of this recent, there's a recent work by Duchesne and colleagues, they went through the pathogen genomes available right now. So it's about 236 of them reconstructed from almost 13,000 individuals. So that's about a success rate of 0.01%. So even though these are very exciting finds, the question becomes, is that success rate reasonable to keep going and going through these extensive sampling and destructive processes? Even though you're looking at aspects of human history that are really exciting because you can bring in the pathogen component to look at the human experience in uh, sort of prehistory, does that outweigh sort of this idea of diminishing returns and positive results? So just to be clear that I got this. So this other study that you mentioned looked at other researchers and their publications and found 13,000 remains that were tested. And of those 13,000 cases, 230 something had some pathogen in them. Right. So as you said, that's a very low ratio on one hand. And on the other hand, as far as I understand, in most, maybe not all publications, but most publications would not report on negative fines, right? They would not include any negative fines within the publication. It depends. So in it might not be in the main part of the paper, but the supplementary information for the papers might report on the individuals that they screened and whether they could detect particular signatures of the pathogen or whatever they were looking for in those particular individuals. So I think there should be reports of the rate of success. So if you worked with 100 individuals and you're only able to get something from maybe 10, you would ideally all of those individuals would be listed in the supplementary information, how much sequencing data was generated from them, how much was specific to that particular pathogen, and then how it was determined that particular individuals went forward or how those, you can see how certain individuals maybe had more pathogens in terms of recovery rate. Yeah. I think I've seen that information in the article, depending on the article, sometimes I don't think it ever makes it out into the BBC report or guardian report or whatever it might be on how many were tested, right? You just focus on the two or three that actually had the result you want. That's true. So the focus is going to be the exciting results that are the output of all of that work to get to those exciting results and not necessarily the sort of ones that didn't work that are sort of built upon the ones that did. So to get back to the previous point, what pathogens were found among the 236 cases of ancient DNA that did have pathogens in them? Or in other words, which pathogens can ancient DNA work detect at all? Beyond the issues that are associated with how a disease particularly spreads in the body, not all pathogens are are not necessarily going to be equally retrievable from ancient tissues. So for example, enteric pathogens, so certain bacteria, viruses, or parasites that impact the the intestinal system, they're not always bloodborne. So if they do not spread to the blood, you're not going to be able to detect those in skeletal elements or skeletal tissues. So that would require looking at something more soft tissue related. So perhaps those from archival, medical, or maybe even histological collections. But on the rare chance, it can happen for an enteric pathogen to become bloodborne, and then you could detect it perhaps in teeth. That was done a little bit recently with Salmonella enterica. Bacteria that generally have thicker cell walls, like ones associated with tuberculosis and leprosy, they'll preserve really well, and they contribute to enhanced sort of preservation over time. And that's why there are so many ancient pathogen studies on tuberculosis and leprosy in the past just because they preserve so well. So there's a lot of those. And in general, just bloodborne infections like Yersinia pestis associated with plague, a lot of plague work has been done because in terms of if individuals die from it, they're gonna have a higher pathogen load. So in terms of that bloodborne spread of a particular pathogen, that may be more easily achieved with something like that. And you could recover it years, hundreds of years after the fact, just because there may have been so much at the time that that individual died, not necessarily from it, but it was there in their body. And even malaria could technically is along the same lines, being bloodborne, having that potential detection later on in skeletal elements, but again, can also be tricky depending on where that infection was at the time that particular individual died. But what we're seeing now 
is being able to access some less common pathogens. So moving beyond just the ones that are sort of popular, tuberculosis, leprosy, plague, moving into ones that may be tricky to recover like syphilis because it does not preserve as well. It has no outer uh, wall cell membrane. So it degrades a bit. And when it's in the late stages of disease, there's a low pathogen load. So it's previously difficult to try to recover whole genome signatures of that pathogen. But now with advances in how it, the study of these ancient pathogens are approached, the laboratory work side and the computational side, there has been recovery of the particular genome associated with syphilis. So there is a greater, I guess, scope of pathogens that can be recovered, but it requires, I guess, appreciating the epidemiology of the particular disease and where it may localize in the particular body and then trying to maximize the chances of recovery by selecting the appropriate substrate to try to recover it from. So you've worked in malaria in particular. Why did you choose that disease to focus on? So during my PhD, I wasn't exposed to ancient DNA before I started, but I took a course on ancient biomolecules and came across a 2001 paper that used PCR technology to identify malaria from an infant burial in the fifth century in Northern Italy. So that really piqued my interest. And I then really got into malaria when I read uh, Robert Solera's book, Malaria in Rome, a history of malaria in ancient Italy. So that really uh, captured my interest because malaria stood out to me because of this intriguing history that it has in terms of being hypothesized as one of the over 200 reasons that may have contributed to the fall of the empire. And ancient Rome is just one of those rare historical scenarios where there's this long-standing connection of malaria to its history. And what was also striking is at the time, there was this patchwork of evidence that related to malaria presence in ancient Rome. So there are ancient texts that document periodic fevers, which malaria may cause, but other diseases may cause that too. And then there's also skeletal evidence that may be indirectly associated with it. And then this prior molecular work from 2001. So a lot seemed to be missing to me in terms of looking at malaria in other age groups. So looking at malaria in adults and whether malaria could be found in other locations in Italy. So I wanted to really explore that, particularly in the central south regions, and then whether with current high throughput sequencing technology, could the causative malaria species be identified? And then how could that evidence, if it was found, be framed in the context of the particular individuals that it was recovered from and where they were living at the time? So that actually ties into one question I wanted to ask you. So from the perspective of us historians, or at least some of us, we are interested in ancient societies. While we see geneticists as being interested more in the DNA than the broader implications, or really the people that who belong to those societies died or were infected with those diseases. Now, from your story, reading essentially a historical book by an, by an historian. So would you see things similarly or would you see th things differently? And are you an exception or the rule based on your perspective, of course, among paleogeneticists? So I think there is in general a convergence in the questions that are of interest to historians, geneticists, biologists, archeologists, in terms of looking at this human history. Of disease. So I think there is more a shift to understanding the ancient DNA within the context, that it's not isolated or separate or separate from the context that you recover it from. So I think there is there is a greater push, I think, for integrating different types of evidence, whether it's archaeological, epidemiological, using historical or ancient literary texts and trying to reconstruct these ancient landscapes in terms of looking at the human environment interaction and then aspects of disease ecology to the extent that those can be untangled using or sort of harnessing the collaboration of different experts in their respective fields. And I think in terms of having that collaboration, it really showcases the complementarity of ancient DNA to provide that more complete perspective of ancient societies and helps with the hypothesis testing if you have these multidisciplinary teams that are really crucial to try to frame that ancient DNA evidence to the extent that it is meaningful and then bringing in other types of data as well. So I think there is more of that happening, but there are probably still going to be a certain focus on just the pathogen because that is exciting. So not necessarily in the context. So focusing on the evolutionary history, all of that is very interesting, but boiling it down to what that meant 
for those individuals at that time. I think that's the most exciting part. And that'll be variable in terms of how researchers, I think, engage with that. Yeah, no, I think your last point was key there because I often see so many of these studies framed as big pathogen. We know what it does. And then it's what's a very contextualized study of a single location or a few locations that I think often in the supplementary information are actually very well done, but as it's framed in the overall article is very, very different. Yes, that is correct. There are still challenges in trying to bring that contextualization to those ancient pathogen genomes and having that inclusive historical context that can draw on those frameworks that you see in these papers, the evolutionary, the archeological, the bioarchaeological, anthropological, like trying to bring all of those in is requires that multidisciplinary effort. So that doesn't necessarily always crystallize, but I think there is, there is a move for it, but there's st still challenges in trying to integrate to that extent. So this makes me wonder, because we discussed it at the beginning, kind of the high cost and the financial resources that it takes on the paleogenetic side, how much of that might drive some of the questions that are asked and some of the frameworks that are done and how and when other fields are brought in to the work as a whole, right? In a sense, imagining if you're the institution that has the financial administrative backing to run all these studies versus say a historian or the archeologist does, how much of that might be at play here? I think labs, they can set the direction and the types of research questions that they're interested in and how they acquire their funding to pursue those research questions. But in terms of how that, like I can't speak to how that funding will be doled out to team members. For individuals, if they're leading these sort of intensive research efforts in these uh, more well-funded labs, having that integration, bringing in historians, archeologists to drive those research questions during the process of seeking out funding, ensuring that there is that collaboration at the start. So you bring in your team members so you can partition out whatever funding would be needed for those different aspects of the research to drive different parts of it so that it can converge into something that's comprehensive and integrative and not just a standalone that is relying on the ancient DNA component. So before we kind of wrap up this interview, Maybe one question that we should ask and we haven't asked before is what kind of research questions would you ask? So maybe could you frame, let's say, a couple of research questions that you've started with and maybe that you've answered just to, to give listeners a, a taste of, mm -hmm. of how paleogeneticists think about their research? Right. So in terms of types of research questions I ask, like at the center, of my research question are questions about how biological, cultural, and environmental shifts impact health at different times and places in the past, and how humans are adapting or responding to these challenges. So it means placing an emphasis on the interaction between an individual in a given context with that social, cultural, environmental factors that influence pathways of health and disease. So that enables uh, different types of evidence to be integrated to look at how some of these factors may be at play in the past. So I focus on like how these diverse types of evidence can best be integrated to study human health in the past at a specific moment in time. So looking at whether a particular pathogen is recoverable, that's a good first question, but then having that information, what types of evidence are available for that particular context for that individual to be integrated, whether that's bioarchaeological, archaeological, paleo, environmental, to what degree can those then be brought in to bear on how I look at health in that particular individual, part of the community, and part of the more um, sort of the bigger picture context. And then also, how can HDNA also be leveraged in the framework in a way that recognizes its limitations and challenges as a particular tool in understanding human pathogen relationships? Because it's just an endpoint for analyses. It's not always something super definitive and unchanging. It's just how to embrace it in a way that recognizes what it can and cannot say about different aspects of health in the past. So maybe as a last kind of question here, I'll end pretty broad. What's the link, if there is any, between human health and increased disease burden and 
do you have any thoughts on how you tease this out in your own work? So I think there is a connection to human health, to the scope of the disease burden, particularly if there are increases or changes over time that are due to shifts in technology, demography, or social cultural practices that can impact health and disease. And this is because I think that there, there are pathogen-pathogen interactions that can impact the frequency and distribution of other diseases in a, given to, in a given context. So one disease may hinder the effects of another. It could facilitate the contagiousness of another disease, or maybe some diseases don't influence each other. So what I sort of appreciate and like to focus on is trying to untangle some of these dynamic pathogen pools. So recognizing the co-circulation and coexistence of chronic infections, acute diseases, opportunistic infections that are not connected not connected just with each other, but this biosocial context as well. So trying to look at different types of pathogen signatures that may be present in a particular individual or individuals in a community, and then being able to prioritize which among those would be sort of meaningful in terms of targeting for further research, whether that's through different sequencing or laboratory-based approaches. Yeah, one thing I would love it if you did moving forward is if you shifted your work from Italy to southern France so I could use some of it in my non-plague work. But that's a plea for maybe another podcast. Okay, so, so I guess that on, on this note, we can probably wrap up this interview. So thanks so much, Stephanie, for answering all of our random questions kind of all over the place. But I think it was very informative, at least for me. To, to get a better understanding of how ancient DNA paleogenetics work both within that discipline and field, but also more broadly in the context of some of the interdisciplinary work that has been coming out of the, over the past couple of decades or so. So thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. I had fun. Yeah, thanks so much. So I think that was a very informative interview to, that taught me at least a lot about ancient DNA, again, paleogenetics and, and how the field operates. And I think the point I would start making is that ancient DNA, broadly speaking, the process of producing ancient DNA data, results, articles, papers, is very complicated. Now, this is obvious to an extent, right? But still, when you think about the way they work as opposed to the way we historians work, it's extremely different. We work, most of us at least, work by ourselves. We usually don't need any special specific funding. The costs for failure are much, much lower. I mean, if, if you pick up a book and you read the book and you don't find what you're interested in, that's fine. I mean, you can either pick up another book, or you could transition, shift your research very quickly to answer a different question about the same historical book, for example. Whereas it seems, based on the interview with Stephanie, that in ancient DNA, failure is takes more time, more resources, and at least I, as an outsider, would probably be more risk-averse to failure if I were a geneticist. So first of all, Lee, I just want to say that it's a big deal. You learned that things are complicated. I'm very proud of you. Politics are complicated too. That's what I heard. I also heard life is complicated. But on a serious note, I think you're very much onto something, which is how this process worked. And you know, I'm sure I could have Googled this, but how Stephanie laid out from point A all the way to point Z and the steps that are involved was really eye-opening for me just to hear someone who's obviously done this and been involved in most steps of that process and how I'll use your favorite word complicated it all is was a really wonderful thing to hear. Yeah. And I was surprised that she said that she did this by herself, that this was something that she felt was necessary for her to understand the details my impression before this conversation was that researchers tended to 
maybe work on the latter end of the process. So trying to answer their questions based on data that was maybe produced in their lab, but partially, mostly, completely by other people. Well, I'm sure it's a matter of different labs working in different ways and different power structures, right? I imagine if you're the person running the $20 million lab, you're probably signing off on emails and still getting your name on the article somewhere and getting to arrange where everyone else is in terms of author lists is probably one of your tasks, right? Managing the politics of the people to make sure your new PhD student gets a first author article or your new postdoc gets a first author article. So, you know, it's one of those things where probably I assume the more experienced you get, the less hands-on work you do, unless you really make time for that at a certain point in your career. Right. But the point is that researchers would go, at least early career researchers, students maybe, would learn the entire process. And that, that's not obvious when you think about it. So that, that's one point. But to bring things back to my original point, again, that's when you think about how a lab works, that's completely different from anything that we historians can compare to. There is no nothing similar to that in any of, at least not in my experience in, in our discipline. Well, Lee, this is why the turn of the 19th century is so important, right? Lab science and bacteriology and everything that develops from there. But it's more than that, right? It's, it's both those advances, but also the way research is being done, which is a, a recurring point in this podcast that, again, it's pretty obvious to say different disciplines conduct research in different ways. But the implications of that, I think, are not stressed as often as they should. That would be my my understanding of this. Let's say interdisciplinary gap. Yeah, it's a question of process, right? If you want to go back to my favorite ideas about politics, right? Ultimately, unless you're involved in the process itself, no one outside of that immediate people doing that work care how you do your results. They just want your answers. Right. So no one in many ways cares ultimately how legislation is done, although they'll protest and complain, perhaps. But if something's being done and it helps people or it gives you good results in this context, how it's being done is very, very rarely interrogated. Yeah, I think it's a very good point. I one thing I will have to say here is that I have a colleague in the U.S., who told me about this program in the US, which I don't think I've seen or heard any other place that does something like this, but it allows you as a PhD, a researcher in any discipline, I guess, to go get a master's in another discipline. So let's say as a historian, you could go spend two years, you'd get essentially get funding for this. You'd go spend two years, let's say, in an HNDLA lab and learn how they work, see how they work, understand all the different biases, differences in research questions. And this is something that I guess is very rare. I don't think other than that specific colleague, I've never heard anyone else do this. But if we're thinking about ways to bridge this gap, so this might be one of those. Yeah, I'd also know someone who's actually doing something similar where they're doing a master's degree at the end of their PhD. But it all comes down to time, energy, effort, and the field you're in, right? I mean, if you're not working in a field that has much to do with science at all, I don't know what kind of master's degree you're necessarily going to get, right? If you're doing a more standard archival dive on politics, let's say, one could argue maybe a master's degree in political science, but I don't know how much more that's really going to get you. No, I think stuff like archaeology could definitely be helpful, but yeah. Now, another point that came up, I think, during the interview is, I think the interesting contrast between, on one hand, the cutting edge research that's being done in ancient DNA, broadly speaking, and the, very, and the many positive aspects of that. But I think Stephanie also showed some of the issues involved. And this brings us back to some of the discussions we've had over this interview issues such as the cost issue, which was raised a couple of times, or the fact that you might not find anything, which is also 
an issue. There may be ethical issue of destroying some of these samples and preventing future researchers from using them. Yeah, I thought these studies you mentioned about how much ancient DNA work has done in terms of remains, right? That they've tested 13,000 different remains and only 236, I think it was, have anything been found. And that number, I don't think is talked about enough, right? The low percentage. And also some of the inherent biases and in how the data is collected, I think is often not reported. She pointed out really nicely that they did a random sample of three sites when it came to malaria. But as far as I'm aware, at least when it comes to plague work, people are not doing random samples on these cemeteries usually. They're pre-selecting what they're looking for, which can be more useful and also obviously can lead to obvious problems with that data that then is itself never reported as a bias that goes into the data before the data set's even put together. And that brings us back to the point I had at the beginning of this reflection segment. So for us historians, it's actually very important to understand how, in the case of plague, how the, the ancient DNA was collected and what are the implications of that specific methodology. And I think that even if some of the geneticists or all the geneticists write this down in their article, I think for most of us historians who just don't have any training in statistics or maybe some minimal training in statistics, I'm not sure we all get the nuances of the benefits of random sampling, for example, as opposed to pre-selected sampling. Yeah, I'll just add on that point that when we were writing an article together, Lee, we were told we had to define or take out the phrase randomly selected sample because we were told by reviewers they didn't necessarily know what it meant. I did not remember that, but thanks for, for reminding me of that. <laughs> yeah. The last thing I want to touch on, but I thought you would bring up in this reflection segment, Lee, because it's one of your hobby horses, is neoliberalism in the university and the disparities, as you pointed out, between the global north and the global south. No, that's a, that's a good point. I, If I remember correctly, there, there's an article in Nature, I think, in the magazine, so not, not a research article, but just a story on paleogenetics. And I think this is maybe like four years ago or so. And they, they put together a list of the labs that publish the most. I think the 10 labs worldwide that publish the most on ancient DNA. I might be wrong here. But there was major differences between the top labs and even like the second half of the, the like six labs number six to ten, who couldn't publish anywhere near the as much as the, the first lab published. And I think that once you go down the ladder, you get more labs with less resources, and that definitely makes a difference. Now, of course, you can make the same argument about history as well, right? For history, you need a research library. And if you don't have a research library, you, some people at least would say that you'd be very limited in with regards to the questions you can or cannot ask or can or cannot try to answer. In earlier publications in history, I vaguely remember that some scholars would write, I tried to get articles so-and-so or books so-and-so, but could not get hold of it. And that's why it's not in here. And that kind of reasoning, I don't remember seeing it very often anymore, but it is an issue for us as well. Maybe not as much of an issue, but it still is an issue. Yeah, I think what we're talking about here though is degrees of difference are much more substantial, right? I mean, I had a colleague who needed something from the UK and this was an article that only existed in a book that can be found in two libraries in all of the United Kingdom. And she emailed me and said, do you have this? And Firestone Library, which is Princeton's main library, had a copy. And so I just went literally down the stairs, took a couple photos on my phone and sent them to her, right? I mean, so there is a disparity in research and there's disparity in money. And I acknowledge that, but there is a huge degree of difference in disparity when you're talking 10, $20 million centers versus places that simply could never fund a center like that. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly the point. That's exactly the difference. So, Lee, as we conclude this episode, 
I know this is a topic that you're extremely excited to talk about. And I think every podcast now I've listened to this week has talked about it, but that's GameStop. So I know you've been following the story because you send me excited links and videos over the course of the last four or five days. Have you been buying stock yourself, Lee, or what are you doing here? Well, yeah, I'll start by saying that this is not financial advice in any any way, standard format or anything like that. But yes, I have bought some. What about you, Merle? Have you bought any? No, I don't buy individual stock. Uh, spoken like a true investor. No, so I picked up the story in the middle of last week. And for me, maybe the most interesting part was to listen to the different discourse that the parties in this episode are, are producing. So parties such as various people in politics, various people in finance, the Reddit board where all this has started and has been exploding since. So it's very interesting to read. What about you, Merle? What's, what's your take on all this? I mean, I don't have a single take. I think the broad take is if there are small investors of which I would include you, Lee, sorry, and they're able to make some money on this, God bless them. And if that also harms hedge funds, great. But you're not going to step in. No, I consider it a not particularly effective way of sticking it to the man in the long scheme of things. Because at this point, I have to assume the hedge funds have all gotten out of this as much as they can or as much as they're willing to accept losses. So at this point, it's probably not even about the hedge funds anymore. So what is this all about then? I think that's where it started. I think what's interesting to me right now, and this may change by the time you all listen to this podcast, is it seems to be now a question of showing the hollowness and the fakeness of the stock market itself, right? I mean, you have this stock and this company that everyone acknowledges is worthless, right? I mean, it's a completely outdated form of selling a, a particular type of product. Well, yes and no. I mean, it's still, they still have 5,500 stores worldwide, really. They're still valued in the billions, even before this. And you could make an argument that running that company down, essentially by people on Wall Street, is unethical, especially now in the middle of, of a pandemic, right? regardless of whether their their business model makes sense in 2021. I, I don't disagree with that, but what I think the long-term implications are, and this is me prognosticating, and historians are nothing if great prognosticators, as we've heard from many of our colleagues on this show, but it shows that basically you can play with stocks as if they're really nothing else in society, which we know, right? They're constructs just like everything else as historians like to say. But if you can basically run up a stock that has no value behind it, and this can just happen whenever people want, I think it rams home to an extent to more of the quote unquote average person, just how worthless the whole stock market is as a entity other than a belief system that people seem to like. But I think it's broader than that, right? It's more than just the stock market. It's, you could say the entire financial system, which is built upon this stock market and these more or less legitimate games with it. Yeah, of course. But again, my point here is that all of these apps like Robinhood that acted terribly during this process very clearly. I mean, if you haven't watched the interviews with the CEO, they're hilarious. <laughs> but essentially his message is, we have no problem and keep downloading our app because we're democratizing investing. Even as they clearly have problems with financing. But by having that message of democratizing, what they've essentially done is actually shown more people how fake the whole thing is. And again, by, by the whole thing, I mean the financial system as a whole. Right. And, th and then the question is, what are you going to do with that? 
So what are you going to do with that role as someone actually living in the country where this financial system is operating? I don't know. I haven't made up my mind, but clearly it's not, you know, making a couple hundred bucks on the side as you have. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not in that for the money. I mean, I, it's, it's not the point, I think. At, at least not for me. So why are you doing it? I think it's a way to show solidarity with a group or with the idea. I, I mentioned earlier that I've been looking at the discourse of these different groups and these different parties in this, this entire episode. And one of the things that struck me was to read what investors on this specific Reddit board were saying. And I think maybe the most common thing they referred to was the 2008 crash. And apparently people have very, still have very strong feelings about being neglected, being just ignored by the system, the same system which bailed out the banks and the, the finance people who are now, who continued playing with all these stocks, stock market, all these financial tools that I would say the vast majority of the population has no idea how they operate. They don't really seem to create any tangible value to anyone other than those people who become very rich. And really a way to show solidarity, I bought the stock knowing that it was grossly overpriced. I knew that I knew and still know that I might make a profit, but I entered with money that I know that there's a high, very high possibility that I'll, I'm going to lose it all. And in a sense, it doesn't matter. It's being part of the movement in this specific event. That's what matters more to me. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I'll just say this is obviously all part of the COVID pandemic process in which the stock market, right, has just continued to soar. Hedge funds are doing perfectly fine. And most people are not. Right. And so it's a building on of 2008, but obviously the immediate context is what's happened to the stock market during COVID. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's probably true. Okay. So I guess the, that on this note, after speaking about GameStop and, and the stock, which I really like, by the way, it's a meme, we can wrap up this episode. And as usual, we'd like to thank the LePage Center for funding us. And our webmaster, Vered Rekanati, who's been loyal and doing a great job with us for ever since we've started. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and let us know if you're in solidarity with Lee and you've bought lots of GameStock.